In this day and age, we love to talk about boldness. We want bold solutions from our politicians, uh, bold ventures from our economists, bold procedures from our healthcare professionals, uh, bold tactics from our military personnel, bold ideas from our think tanks, bold zeal from our missionaries, and maybe even bold sermons from our preachers. But we want stepping forward and not shrinking back. We want that from others. But what would that look like for our lives, for ourselves? What could boldness look like in our lives as Christians? What kind of boldness ought we to have? This morning we turn to consider Acts chapter 4, verses 5 to 31, and we're greeted with the boldness of Peter and John. But by the end of the passage, all the believers in view are speaking the word of God with boldness. It's my prayer that the Lord be pleased to use this passage to transform the timid among us. May God use His Word this morning to help us see that the glory of Jesus should transform our shrinking back to stepping forward in boldness for Christ. If you haven't done so already, let me invite you to open your copy of God's Word to Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 5. We're going to study through verse 31 of that chapter. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, I think you can find the passage beginning on page 912. As you know, the the book of Acts, or as you may know, the book of Acts was written by Luke. Uh, Luke, he wishes to detail for us how the risen and reigning Jesus is carrying forward his ministry on earth. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus prepared his disciples to receive power from the Holy Spirit so that they might be his witnesses from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the end of the earth. So Jesus promised in Acts chapter 1, and that's what happened in Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit was poured out, and Peter boldly proclaimed that Jesus is risen and reigning and ruling. And that's why the Spirit was poured out. You see what is taking place at Pentecost unfold. And then in Acts chapter 3, and the first part of chapter 4, which we studied uh, last week, we saw Peter and John on their way to the temple healing a, a lame man. They healed this lame man, and it became something of a scene. A crowd gathered around them, and they explained that this man was healed by the power and name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, as that scene unfolded, the Jewish religious leaders turned up. They interrupted uh, Peter and John, and they arrested them. And that's where we left off last week, with Peter and John going to jail. And this week, it's where we pick up. We see the the, the follow-through or what would happen after that. In our text this morning, Acts chapter 4, verses 5 to 31, it has three scenes. First, we hear Peter and John give their defense before the the Jewish religious elite, those who had placed them in custody. We see that in verses 5 to 12. And then second, we're invited into the deliberations of this council. That's what takes place in verses 13 to 22. And then third, in Acts chapter 4, verses 23 to 31, we see God's people depend upon Him in prayer, praying that God would make them bold for the Lord Jesus Christ. And in each of these different scenes and in different ways, we see that God's people are filled with the Holy Spirit to boldly proclaim Jesus. If you were to put me in a corner and make me summarize this text in a single sentence, that would be it. God's people are filled with the Holy Spirit to boldly proclaim Jesus. Jesus. We're going to work our way through these three scenes uh, under three points, three headings. So here's the first point. Bold proclamation. Bold proclamation. That's what we see in Acts chapter 4, verses 5 to 12. Follow along now as I read just those verses. Acts chapter 4, verses 5 to 12. On the next day, 
Their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Well, you see there, verse 5, it opens by reminding us that Peter and John, they had been imprisoned overnight for proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. When the Jewish religious authorities interrupted their teaching on the previous day, it was already evening. I wonder if you've ever turned up to a store just before it closes, you're trying to purchase something, and perhaps a, a, a clerk uh, points out to you, I'm sorry, we're just not going to have time to process your order tonight. You'll have to come back the, the next morning. Well, something like that has happened with Peter and John. There wasn't time for the, the council to be called in the evening, and so they decided to process their case the next day. So though you and I may leave a store without purchasing an item and coming back the next day, we're able to go home. Well, Peter and John, they weren't able to go home. They were kept in jail or held in jail overnight. The next day, it seems like all the necessary Jewish religious authorities and then some were able to gather together to hear Peter and John's case. In fact, this cast of characters in verses 5 and 6 is the same council that condemned Jesus. Remember what they did to Jesus. They crucified Jesus. Peter and John, if they were sober-minded men, and we should think that they were, um, they, they should have known full well what this council was capable of. And this council, they questioned Jesus, and here we see them starting with the questions on Peter and John. They asked there in verse 7, by what power or by what name did you do this? Peter, note that we are told, is filled with the Holy Spirit to boldly proclaim Jesus as the fulfillment of the scriptures. Remember, this is what Jesus said would happen in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. The Holy Spirit would be poured out so that his disciples would be witnesses, his witnesses, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So what we're seeing here is only what Jesus promised. It's continuing to carry out this program announced in the very beginning of the book of Acts. But think about Peter and John. Put yourself in their shoes for a moment. Think of the intimidation and fear that the Lord must have helped them overcome in this moment. Peter and John, they are facing the council that condemns Jesus. He's facing a council of men who are powerful. They can convince the sitting governor to execute a man on trumped-up charges. He's facing, Peter is facing a council of men who are highly educated, highly esteemed, and highly positioned over the Jewish people in Jerusalem. Not only is the high priest Caiaphas there, but so is Annas. Annas was kind of the high priest emeritus, if you will. Uh, he was the, the high priest before Caiaphas served. They're asking Peter, by whose authority do you do these things? And one such implication of this is that Peter and John are not acting on behalf of their authority. That's a very human thing, isn't it? 
that people get a little touchy when you step on their authority. I mean, even I as a parent will sometimes remind my children that you're not her father or his mother. You shouldn't be saying those kinds of things. That's mom and dad's responsibility. We, we feel this in our lives, right? When our authority is stepped on, we, we, we get a little unsettled. Well, that's certainly happened with respect to this council. We learned last week that they were greatly annoyed. But here's a lesson that we must learn from this text. The only thing that drives out one fear is the fear of one greater. Peter and John, we see, fear God more than they fear these men. And this is a lesson that we ought to learn from Peter and John and apply to our own lives. Bold proclamation means fearing God more than man, no matter how highly esteemed or powerful they are. Brothers and sisters, we fear man too much, myself included. Here is at least one way in which we will be tempted to disobey this word from God. We will be tempted to shrink back rather than step forward for bold proclamation because we fear man more than we fear God. We love our lives and our livelihoods too much. And this would have been a temptation for Peter and John too. This council could have taken their livelihoods and their lives. But Peter and John, they feared God more than they feared these men. Uh, William Gurnall once said, We fear men so much because we fear God so little. As this text continues to unfold, we're going to be confronted again and again with the need for boldness. You and I need to decide today and day by day whether God or men will be uppermost in our affections. Bold proclamation means fearing God more than men, no matter how highly esteemed or powerful they are. Peter tells, uh, tells us that these men, or he tells these men personally and directly, that this sign of healing the, the lame man was performed in the name and in the power of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. That's exactly actually what he said the day before. But he's had a night in prison to think about his answer. Maybe the Jewish religious leaders thought that a night in a cell would soften him up. Well, it seems to have had the opposite effect. Not only does Peter tell them that Jesus healed this man, but he tells them that this is something that all the people of Israel should know. He's telling these teachers of Israel, actually, you should be telling everybody this as well. This is what's happening. That's what he's saying in verse 10. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel. Peter wants everyone to know that Jesus is the Messiah that God promised in the Scriptures. In case these men had forgotten, Peter reminds them for a third time in the book of Acts that they were the ones who crucified Jesus. They crucified him. But God raised him. They rejected Jesus, but God received Jesus as the cornerstone of the end time house that God is building. These men were God's builders, but they have proven incapable of receiving and resting their lives upon the cornerstone that God sent to them. In verse 11, Peter, he's alluding to Psalm 118, verse 22. We, we read it earlier in the service. That verse says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And there's so much more that if you were to go back and look through that, that psalm, it opens our exposure to see how it predicted and pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ. There's the spoke, speak, spoken, Psalm 118 speaks of a sacrifice that was being bound and, and, and held and tied out and offered on behalf of God's people. And that was certainly the Lord Jesus Christ, wasn't it? This is Peter's sermon in part on Psalm 118. Hearing these words from Peter really should have shaken his hearers to the core. These were the very words that Jesus uttered 
in Luke chapter 20, after Jesus told the parable of the vineyard workers. That was a parable in which Jesus accused the Jewish religious leaders of killing God's prophets and predicting that they would kill God's son. And in his gospel, uh, we're, we're told that Jesus looked directly at his hearers and said, what else can this mean? But that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Part of what Jesus was explaining in his sermon on Psalm 118 was that he was insisting that the rejected and therefore killed stone would become God's cornerstone. And Jesus was expressing that he would rise from the grave to be the one upon whom the people of God would be built. Uh, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, that the foundation of God's church is Jesus Christ, the cornerstone with the apostles and prophets. And then the believers are, are built upon top of that. And Jesus is making that claim that I'm the, the end time house, the, the temple of God with God's people that is being built up for the glory of God. Jesus is the cornerstone whom God's people, his house, is being built. And then Peter presses it further. Salvation is found in no other. There's no other foundation for salvation. Now, we need to recognize just how controversial Peter's claim would have been to these Jewish religious leaders in verse 12. They would have agreed with Peter that there is only one source of salvation, that Yahweh is that sole source of salvation. They would have argued for the, exclusive, the exclusivity of salvation in Yahweh from texts like Isaiah 43, verse 11, where we read, I, I am the Lord Yahweh, and beside me there is no Savior. Or Isaiah 45, verse 21. And there is no other God beside me, a righteous God and Savior. There is none beside me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. Peter's hearers, they would have not have had any problem with understanding that salvation has a sole, a single source. But Peter's bold declaration is this, that God the Father has made plain that the sole source of salvation is His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus, really, is Yahweh in flesh. If Yahweh is the sole source of salvation, and Jesus, Peter says, is the sole source of salvation, then Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is God. He is the righteous God and Savior that Isaiah spoke about. The cornerstone is Jesus, and there is no other. If you're looking in salvation in anyone other than Jesus, you don't have it. That's part of Peter's bold declaration. That's what he's saying to these men who are trusting in their good works as religious leaders to secure their salvation. You know, some time ago I was sitting at a table with a woman in her 80s, and uh, we were having coffee and we were talking about the Lord. And at one point in the conversation, I asked her something like, on what grounds does the Lord receive people into heaven? And she said something like, well, I, I suppose that we're welcomed into heaven because of our, uh, of our doing good. To which I, I immediately told her, no, no, no. I turned in my Bible to Romans chapter 3, verse 12 and pointed out that God's word says that no one is righteous, not even one. No one does good. To which she exclaimed, oh. And, and I told her that the only way we are to be received into heaven is not on the basis of our good work or our uh, good name, but on the basis of Jesus' work and faith in His name. The reason that we are accepted into God's kingdom is because of Jesus and what He has done for us. And children, you, you need to understand this too. Children, you will not be saved because of your parents' faith in Jesus. You must have faith in Jesus. Your parents' faith cannot save you. You must have faith in Jesus 
and Jesus alone. Uh, and I, I think there's something that might illustrate this. Some time ago, um, I was invited by the, the chaplain of the Washington Nationals baseball team to come to a, a game. And uh, I was invited to bring some of my, my children. So my children and I, we went to this game. We were invited in the name of Daniel Murphy, who was uh, on the Washington Nationals at that time. And we were allowed to go into various portions of Nationals Park because of his name, not because of our name. I could walk around there, hi, I'm, I'm Mike Law, but they're not going to know me from, from anyone. But they do know the name of Daniel Murphy. And that'll get you access to walking down on the field and watching batting practice and going through the corridors of various places. Well, that's something akin to what we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not welcomed into the kingdom of God because of our name or because of our parents' name, but because of Jesus' name and his name alone. Christian, this carries implication for your evangelism too. Bold proclamation means proclaiming the exclusivity of salvation in Jesus. Christian, you're going to have your friends and your uh, co-workers and family members, they're they're going to want to know about the Lord Jesus, and you're going to need to tell them their salvation found in no other name but Jesus. They might say to you, but, but my Muslim neighbor, um, he's religious. He's going to heaven, right? And you're going to have to say, no. Unless he is trusting in Christ alone for salvation, he is going to hell. Uh, well, that's what the Bible teaches. Or, or when your friends say, you know, all, all roads lead to God. So just as long as a person has faith, they're going to heaven, right? You're going to have to say no. Unless a person is trusting in Christ alone for their salvation, they're going to hell. That's what the Bible teaches. You will not love or serve others if you allow them to live in the darkness of that lie. The most loving thing you can do is what Peter and John did. Boldly proclaim that salvation is found in no one else but Jesus. Bold proclamation means proclaiming the exclusivity of salvation in Jesus. Friends, there is only one Savior, and that Savior is Jesus. Yes, the Bible makes an exclusive claim. Salvation is not found in Islam. It is not found in Buddha. Salvation is not found in the gods of Hinduism. Salvation is only found in Jesus. And you need Jesus. Notice the necessity that Peter includes in his declaration. Look at the words at the end of verse 12. We must be saved. Friends, we really must be saved. You must be saved or else you will forever be lost to eternity in hell. Where you will bear eternal, self-conscious torment of the infinitely holy, righteous, and wrathful God. You must be saved. Do not despair. Peter is here offering salvation to those who crucified Jesus. He's offering salvation in Jesus' name to those who actually rejected the cornerstone when he was right there in front of them. For there is salvation available to you in Jesus Christ. Jesus can save you, and you must be saved by Jesus. So friend, hear this good news. Though all mankind has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, he saves those who turn from their sin and trust in his Son. Though we have all rebelled against God and chosen to live according to our own ways rather than his ways, he has chosen to send His Son to live for us, to die for us, bearing the punishment that's due to our sin, and to be raised from the grave for the forgiveness of our sins. Friends, make Jesus the cornerstone of your eternal destiny. He possesses all power needed to save you, and you must be saved by Him. We too must boldly proclaim Jesus. 
The reality is that those who have been saved by Jesus and so united to Jesus by faith, we have received the gift of the Holy Spirit. What is more, Jesus has even commissioned us to go and make disciples of all nations. That's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28. Jesus commands us to be disciples who make more disciples. And that means that we are going to have to boldly proclaim Jesus. Bold proclamation means stressing the urgency and the necessity of salvation. While we recognize that we, we cannot make anyone believe. Nevertheless, we must call others to believe, to repent and believe in Jesus today. Now, friends, I urge you to turn from your sin and to trust in Jesus today. Now, rebel against him no longer. Receive him now. Bold proclamation means that we stress the urgency and necessity of salvation. We do not, in our evangelism, we do not use any tactics of manipulation or apply any type of psychological pressure. Rather, we simply point to the truth. We point to Jesus. We remind our friends, our family members, our co-workers, that no one is promised tomorrow, that judgment is certain, that Jesus' return is imminent, and that God commands all men everywhere to repent. For today is the day of salvation. And we share the good news about Jesus with others. As we do this, we urge them to turn from their sins and to trust in him today. I do think that bold proclamation means stressing the urgency and necessity of salvation. Well, we've heard Peter, Peter's bold proclamation uh, in, in Jesus. The stone that the builders rejected has become God's cornerstone, the sole source of salvation. How would these builders have responded to Peter, to his proclamation. Well, that's what we find in verses 13 to 22 of Acts chapter 4. We learn that they want to silence such bold proclamation. In other words, these leaders, they have a settled determination to silence Peter and John. But Peter meets such calls for silence with his own kind of settled determination. And that's the title of our next point, settled determination. See if you can spot this in Peter and John's response. Follow along as I read verses 13 to 22, starting in verse 13 now. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another and saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them and speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Well, I don't know about you, but in, in my own reading of this passage, I was taken by verse 13. The, the Jerusalem authorities clearly see several things about Peter and John. They, they see their boldness. They see that they're uneducated and common men. And they see that they had been with Jesus. I wonder if you can see yourself in that verse. 
I bet that when it comes to Christianity, maybe many, maybe most, perhaps in this room, feel like uneducated and common Christians. Maybe you think to yourself, I, I can't make a bold proclamation like Peter and John. I certainly can't do it to sharp and specialized religious teachers who had had years of training. Well, brothers and sisters, I assure you that you can make a bold proclamation like Peter and John. I mean, when you think about it, they didn't really do anything remarkable, did they? Go back and read through the first three chapters of the book of Acts, and what you'll see is the apostles simply quote Scripture and then point to Jesus. I mentioned this at Bible study on Wednesday night, but I'll say it again. The best proclaimers are just good pointers. That's what they do. They point to God's authoritative word, and they point to God's amazing Son. You can do that. And all who have come into membership here at Arlington Baptist Church are able to do this. We, we make sure that you're able to do this in your membership interview. One of the things we ask you to do in your membership interview is share with us in about a minute or so, what is the good news of Jesus Christ? We want to make sure that you are able to boldly proclaim Jesus. So every member of this church is able to boldly proclaim Jesus. And here's the thing. You, by God's grace, are filled with the Holy Spirit. If you are united to the Lord Jesus Christ, you have God's Holy Spirit. So you can boldly proclaim Jesus. But perhaps you think to yourself, no, I, I mean, I can't. I mean, Mike, just, just look at the text, right? It says there in verse 13 that the religious leaders recognized that Peter and John had been with Jesus. I mean, they, they walked with Jesus. They talked with Jesus. They, they sat at his feet for three years. I don't have that. Well, the Jewish religious leaders, they certainly have come to recognize Peter and John as having been with Jesus in his ministry. But I tell you this, others, I think, should be able to recognize whether or not you've been with Jesus. I, mean, I, I know that the text means that these religious leaders physically recognized Peter and John, right? I've seen, I've seen these guys before. They've been with him in all these various places. They had set their eyes on them. But I do think there is a spiritual implication for us here. The world should be able to tell that we've been with Jesus, that we've walked with him, that we've talked with him. And that we have sat at his feet and learned from him. Brothers and sisters, what do you think the Bible is other than the book of Jesus' teaching? We sit at his feet as we sit and listen to his word. We hear the voice of Jesus in the Bible. And if you've prayed, you've talked with God. That's how you can be with Jesus. That's what a relationship looks like, isn't it? We sit and we converse. We hear from one another. We talk with one another. Have you been with Jesus? Have you sat and listened to what Jesus says in his word. Have you spoken to him? Your heart's desires and prayer. I think being with Jesus in the word and in prayer. I think that will give us power and boldness to proclaim him. The resources and the Holy Spirit to, to do this. Christian you might be an uneducated common man or woman. But you can be sure that those are exactly the kind of people that God is pleased to use. To boldly proclaim Jesus. That's who Peter and John are. If that's you. He's called you to pro proclaim him with joy and delight. One kind of settled determination that you need to have as a Christian is the willingness to be used of God. God might even use you to astonish some very sharp people, just like Peter and John astonished their hearers. The Jerusalem authorities, they, they recognized several things about Peter and John, but they also recognized a real problem standing before them. Next to Peter and John was the lame man who had been healed. The problem is, is that everybody knew him. He had sat, he'd been alive for 40 years, I think verse 22 says. He had been brought day by day to the temple. People walked by him. Everybody recognized him. They knew that he was lame. And now they knew that he was standing on both legs. 
They had a problem. And they have no answer for Peter and John. What's interesting is that the silence of the religious leaders is actually a kind of fulfillment of what Jesus said to his disciples in Luke 21, verse 15. Jesus said, For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. While these religious leaders are left with silence with respect to Peter and John's claims, they still recognize that they must do something. Their authority is on the line. It's been publicly challenged. Right? If Jesus is truly the Messiah and Peter and John are truly his messengers, then really the right thing for these religious leaders to do is to give way and to allow this message about Jesus to be proclaimed. But they don't, and they won't. There's something that we have to be aware of about sin. It is stubborn. Sin is stubborn. We're about to see a settled determination emerge from Peter and John, but notice first that the Jewish religious leaders have their own kind of settled determination. They're not going to change their tune. They're going to dig their heels in. They're going to keep going down the same path. On Friday, I was talking with a friend who is an economist, and he introduced me to this term called uh, path dependence. Um, He said that this reminds him of what these Jewish religious authorities were doing. Path dependence is this idea that people are committed to a path because of a particular decision they've made in the past. And this decision, that decision, it set them on that path. And if... They, they can't get off it otherwise. They can't get off the path. Otherwise, they call into question all of their past decisions. That's simply what I mean by this settled determination with respect to these religious leaders. They decided in the past to try and squash the Jesus messianic movement. And even now, when they are faced with, again, incontrovertible evidence that Jesus is the Messiah, they're going to continue down this path of opposing him and his movement. This is their settled determination. Mark well, mark well, dear Christian, that when unbelief opposes Jesus, it will be stubborn. It will be settled. It will be determined. The only thing that can break such a cycle of sinful stubbornness is the work of the Holy Spirit. So for your part, when you meet unbelief that is marked by such a settled determination to silence the truth, you need to keep trusting and obeying and humbly proclaiming. Now, many have wondered how Luke got this kind of inside scoop that we're seeing unfold here among the council in verses 16 and 7. We don't know for sure, but, but I suspect that in time and in God's mercy and might, that God in His kindness saved some of these council members. And so that's how Luke has this account of what took place there. If not that, then the Lord God certainly revealed to His servant Luke what these religious leaders had been discussing. But whatever the case may be, we do see that in verses 16 and 17, while the religious leaders have been silenced by Peter and John's boldness in private, they still try to silence Peter and John's boldness in public. Just look at verse 18. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. If the council has a kind of settled determination, one that's marked by path dependence, as it were, then Peter and John have their own kind of settled determination. We see it in verses 19 and 20. Just read those verses again. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. That's settled determination, isn't it? It's not path dependent, but rather obedience to a divine command. They've been commissioned by Jesus to be his witnesses. Peter and John didn't make the decision to be witnesses. Jesus commissioned them to be his witnesses. They effectively say, we have been speaking, we are speaking, 
And we're going to keep speaking. In fact, we cannot but help speak. So the answer is no. We are going to speak and teach about Jesus. We're going to speak and teach in his name. But before Peter and John give them a no, they tell the council that they need to judge a different case. Right? Peter and John are on trial, but Peter and John effectively kind of turn the tables around on them and say, actually, you need to judge a, a different case. Should we really listen to you or should we listen to God? You tell me who's more important. Uh, they, they put them on their back foot, I think. That's the, the right question to ask. That's the right thing to think about in this scenario. Here we're back to Peter and John fearing God above man and even teaching uh, those who have them on trial that they ought to fear God above man. They care what God thinks. Peter and John think what Peter and John uh, care what God thinks more than what man thinks about them. You know, on, on Wednesday, a pastor I love and respect, he sent me a, a text message of how he was praying about me. He told me he was praying for me. And, and this is what he said. Praying that what God thinks will matter more to you than what others think. That's what a pastor I love and am friends with told me he was praying for me. And do you know what I texted him back? Just three words. Thank you, brother. I need that prayer. You need that prayer too. We need to care more about what God thinks than what men think. Do you understand what Peter and John are saying in verses 19 and 20? They are saying that forbidding them to speak about Jesus opposes the will of God. Forbidding them to speak about Jesus opposes the will of God. They are messengers for God, commissioned and commanded to be Jesus' witnesses. The council, in banning their preaching of Jesus, had a problem, not with Peter and John, but with God. And let me be as clear as I possibly can. In God's world, preaching, which is part of the corporate worship of God's people, is never an unlawful activity. Let me say that again. In God's world, preaching, which is part of the corporate worship of God's people, is never an unlawful activity. Oh, men may deem it unlawful. Governments in China, Iran, Canada, or in the United States may deem it unlawful. But in doing so, they are opposing God and His superior law. Worship, corporate worship, public worship, is never an unlawful activity. It is a lawful activity. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, commands the corporate worship of God's people. It is made lawful. Worship is made lawful by a command of God in Scripture. And just as Peter and John are obligated to preach by the command of Jesus Christ, so we are obligated to give praise to God by the command of His Word. It is our duty to give God His due. It is our duty to give God the worship that is due to His name. So, brothers and sisters, going forward, we will need to have a settled determination that it is not right for Jesus to go unpraised. We will need to have a settled determination that it is not right for us to hear and heed man when various authorities tell us to disregard and disobey God. Today is a day for choosing. That's what Peter tells the council. Choose whose will will win. You judge God's will or man's will. That's what Peter says to the council. And we, we must have a settled determination that we will obey God above men. When men forbid what God commands, we must obey God. When men command what God forbids, we must obey God. That means there may be times when the elders of this church lead the congregation to disobey earthly authorities. I pray that we will not have to do that. 
And Lord willing, we will only have to do that when earthly authorities forbid what God commands or command what God forbids. And I know the fears that are in your heart because they've been in my heart too. And they reemerge from time to time. Back in the spring of last year, when I was pushing as many authorities as I could for regathering our congregation, I remember my heart racing when I was on the phone with the chairwoman of the Arlington County Board. I was deeply concerned and afraid of what she might do to me or our church should we regather. I know the fears that are in your heart because they've been in my heart too. You're afraid of the arrests, the fines, the embarrassment, the legal battles, the separation from family, and the scorn. You're afraid of the costs of following Jesus, the costs that might affect your life or your livelihood. I've had to face my own question time and time again. Do I really believe the words that I sing in a mighty fortress is our God? Do I really believe let goods and kindred go? This mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Do I believe those words? Am I willing to live those words? We must be willing to give up our livelihoods and our lives for our living Savior. We must fear God more than man. Otherwise, we'll be just like the council. I don't know if you notice this. You notice what motivates the decisions of the council? Right there in verse 21. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. You see, what had happened in Jerusalem, everybody was excited about and pleased about. And the council didn't want to upset others. They were fearing the crowd, fearing the man. Uh, just like uh, Pilate, actually, when you think about it. Pilate feared the crowd, and so he, he gave Jesus over to be crucified. They feared the people. We must have a settled determination to obey God rather than man. To keep doing the things that God commands, just like Peter and John had a settled determination to keep preaching Jesus because God commanded it. We've heard Peter's bold proclamation. We've seen Peter and John's settled determination to keep preaching Jesus. And now we must turn to see their humble dependence and, and the believer's humble dependence upon the Lord to continue to speak the word with boldness. So this is our third and final point, humble dependence. Follow along now as I read Acts chapter 4, verses 23 to 31. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hands to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus and when they had prayed the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness this is an amazing scene to me uh, Peter and John they returned to the fellowship of the saints and together they all commit themselves to prayer 
Notice that the focus of their prayer is on glorifying God for who He is, what He has said, what He has done, and asking Him for more and continued boldness. Their prayer begins by remembering who God is. He is the sovereign Lord who made heaven and earth. In their prayer, they're affirming that God preserves and governs all of His creatures and all of their actions. This is what our prayers of praise do when we have them in our corporate worship services. We praise God for who He is. And this is what we need to remember in seasons of difficulty, in seasons of of opposition. We need to remember that God is sovereign and that He's in control. These saints, they praise God for who He is and for what He has said. In verses 25 and 26, they quote Psalm 2, a wonderful psalm, a messianic psalm, a glorious psalm. It pointed to Jesus. They they point out that Psalm 2 and the nation's uh, rejection, raging against the Lord's anointed Messiah and King is what happened in Jesus' crucifixion. In verse 27, they, they prove their case that Psalm 2 points to Jesus. They identify those who raged against Jesus, the Lord's anointed. Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. And when, when you think about that list, it is clear that the whole world was represented by those who opposed Jesus. The whole world, as it were, opposed Jesus. The Messiah who was condemned by the world and God's sovereign and amazing plan became the Savior of the world. Here again we are confronted with God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. What happened in Jesus Christ, it was simply, as what Peter says, what God, God's hand plan and plan had predestined to take place. God planned the cross. It was no accident. Still, it was those who crucified Jesus who did it. They raged, right? And, and they gathered together against Jesus to do this. Now, we might not understand the, the intricate details of how God's sovereignty and man's responsibility work together, but clearly, according to Scripture, they do. Charles Spurgeon, the great London preacher, was once asked um, to reconcile, if he could reconcile these two truths of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And he said, I, I wouldn't try. I don't reconcile friends. On another occasion, Spurgeon said, And let the people sin with free will, even to the most extreme length of folly. Yet even then, God has a bit in their mouths and a bridle on their jaws and knows how to rule and govern them according to his own good pleasure. The ferocity of kings and priests does but fulfill the counsel of God. This is what these believers are remembering in prayer. God remains in control from beginning to end. God rules over sin and overrules sin all for his saving purposes, as one of my professors used to say. While these saints remember that God is in control, they humbly entrust themselves to God. Do you notice what they call themselves there in verse 29? You see it? They call themselves servants. Servants of God, and it's literally actually slaves. Do you think of yourself as a servant of God? Willing to do your master's command and bidding. And notice that they're connecting themselves to Jesus. Because earlier, they identified Jesus as God's servant. They observed the fact that he was opposed. And now they ask for strength and boldness to be God's servants in the midst of whatever opposition they may face. Think about this. They had boldness. Peter and John, they they had boldness already when they faced opposition. But they know that it will come again. So they ask for boldness again. Simply because we've been bold once in the past doesn't mean we'll be bold again in the future. 
We need to ask for God's help to depend upon Him, to give us the strength to be bold for Him. Peter and John, they are bold, and they ask for boldness again. They pray and depend upon God again and again. That's what prayer is. We're depending upon God. We're asking God to help us because we're weak, and He is strong. If you, if you have a settled determination for bold proclamation, you are not ready, I think, until you have fallen on your face in humility and depended upon God in prayer. Boldness of this kind does not come naturally, but supernaturally. That's why these believers ask for boldness, because it's not natural to us. We need such courage from God. And verse 31, it teaches us, I think it's an encouragement to us, that God is pleased to give it. He's pleased to give boldness. Three, three things make it plain that God was delighted with their request and that he answered it. God shook the building. He, he let them know that he was pleased with this. He, he filled them with his Holy Spirit and he sent them out to speak his word with boldness. As a church family, let us pray for boldness. Let us beg God for it. And let us humbly depend upon him when he sends us out to boldly proclaim Jesus. As we conclude, I want to encourage you to remember and believe that God has filled you with his Holy Spirit to boldly proclaim Jesus. I know that in your heart you doubt this, but draw encouragement from a principal character in this passage. Draw encouragement from Peter. Do you remember what Peter did when Jesus was standing trial? Do you remember when he was identified and recognized as having been with Jesus? What did Peter do? He did not step forward and say, yes, I'm with Jesus. He shrank back. He denied Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. Peter proves that boldness is not natural, but supernatural. And that God is pleased to give boldness to fearful saints. Before God gave Peter boldness, he faded into the background. Now we see here that God has transformed Peter in his kindness and love and grace. He can transform us. In Acts 4, that we, we see that God has given Peter boldness to step forward. And he, along with other believers, they, they pray for more boldness. Brothers and sisters, this transformation occurred in Peter's life. And so this transformation can occur in ours. Just as Peter went from shrinking back to stepping forward, so God can make you. He can transform you to step forward in boldness. Now is not the time for shrinking back. Now is the time for stepping forward. To step forward and proclaim with joy that God is to be feared above all. That salvation is only found in Jesus' name. And that salvation is found in Jesus' name. So be found by Him. Be saved by Him. Now is not the time to shrink back, but to step forward. To step forward with a settled determination that it is better to obey God rather than man. Even if it costs you your livelihood or your life. Even if it costs you the esteem of society your reward will be great in heaven. You will please your Father. You will hear the words, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Master. Now is not the time to shrink back, but to step forward. To step forward as a servant who humbly depends upon God. Ask for God to fill you with His Holy Spirit and for grace to continue to speak the Word of God with boldness. Let's ask for that now in prayer. Let's pray together.